Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to delve into the world of insurance with a new insurance standard, IFRS 17. And to help me get through that maybe slightly painful process, I'm joined by the amazing Gail Tucker, who's our global ACS leader for insurance. Welcome to the podcast studio, Gail. Great to be here. Not only that, Gail is a member of the ISB's Transition Resource Group, which we'll talk about later, and also the IFRAG Insurance Accounting Working Group. So we're very lucky to have you. Thank you very much. I think we first spoke about IFRS 17 about a year ago when we did one of our earlier podcasts where we talked through, it just been issued, we talked through the basic model, what's in scope um, and any significant changes. So we're going to come back and see well, what's happened over the last year. I think when we spoke, we talked the definition and scope maybe hadn't changed that much in comparison to IFRS 4. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Both the definition of an insurance contracts and scope of the standard isn't significantly different compared to the current standard IFRS 4. However, IFRS 17 provides detailed guidance on how to account for insurance contracts, so there aren't the similar exemptions to IFRS 4, which gave the option to continue current accounting and to have non-uniform accounting policies. These options will disappear when IFRS 17 comes into play. So one of the advantages of IFRS 17 is increased comparability. Brilliant. And I'm not uh, categorising all of our listeners as non-insurers, but I don't know how many insurers we've got, Gail. I imagine all the non-insurers think they can ignore IFRS 17. Is that the case? Well, IFRS 17 actually applies to any entity that issues insurance contract. And if we step back, an insurance contract is defined as a contract under which one party accepts significant insurance risk from another party, will be the policyholder, by agreeing to compensate the policyholder if a specified uncertain future event adversely affects the policyholder. God, that's a mouthful. <laughs> it is. Can you give us an example? <laughs> of uh, something we might see just in normal business. Yeah, well, let's think about loans. So sometimes there can be loans where the outstanding balance that hasn't been repaid is waived on death of the customer. This will be an insurance contract or other loans. And typically, we often see them secured on property where the amount repayable on death can be limited to the value of the secured property, and often these are known as equity release mortgages. These sorts of products have to be evaluated carefully. For example, that latter example equity release mortgages has to be accounted whether it has to be accounted for insurance depends on whether there is a significant insurance risk in the contract and that will depend on the age of the customer the interest rates whether any interest is repaid during the life of the loan and the loan to value of the property when the loan was issued. The issue is that currently many of these sorts of products are unbundled meaning that the loan element is accounted for under the financial instrument standard and the insurance element, that is the death benefit, as insurance. Okay, so you mentioned there some entities are currently unbundled. Couldn't they just keep doing that? That would depend on the facts and circumstances, but the key thing is that the unbundling criteria has also changed in IFRS 17. In some cases now, it is prohibited to separate components. So for goods and services and investment components, to cover that loan I talked about, there are criteria where the separation is required in the standard. And the key question will be whether the different components are distinct. For example, if the investment component lapses with the insurance component, or if you can't manage one without the other, then these will not be distinct. That's helpful for life insurers, because that means they don't have to separate out the savings components in the insurance contracts, 
but it might be less helpful for the banks with loans waived on death, where they previously had voluntarily unbundled the investment component. If it's not allowed, unfortunately, the whole contract will have to be accounted for under RFRS 17 and not as amortised cost under RFRS 9. Wow, so you could actually have some things where you used to separate them and now they're in a, you keep them in a bundle. It's this very similar terminology to IFRS 15, distinct. That scares me. We'll have to look back on that one. Okay, so let me just think of uh, other products that I've not thought of as insurance before. What about an example where I've purchased a boiler and I've also got the right of repair if the product breaks down? The issuer of the service contract has accepted the risk of me not having hot water and will repair the repair of my boiler. For a non-insurance specialist, that sounds like an insurance contract. Yeah, I agree. That could be an insurance contract if the insurance risk is significant. However, there's some exemptions in the standard similar to IFRS 4 where warranties issued by a manufacturer, dealer or a retailer, and indeed also pension scheme assets and liabilities and contingent consideration from a business combination, are still scoped out of IFRS 17. But there's also some new exceptions. For example, a maintenance contract for a fixed fee, where the issuer can actually elect to apply IFRS 15 and IFRS 17. So if your boiler wasn't issued by the person who was a manufacturer, dealer or retailer, it could still be accounted for under RFS 15, given it's a fixed fee contract as well. Okay, perfect. So definitely watch out for some scope exceptions there. Okay, so can we conclude that the standard could potentially have an impact outside the insurance industry then? Yeah, I think that's right. There might be situations where some products or features embedded in contracts actually require the entire contract to be accounted for in accordance with RFS 7, which will be a significant change both in the measurement and presentation of the financial effects in the income statement on the balance sheet. And it'll also bring in additional disclosure requirements. Okay, perfect. So first thing, I think we know that it definitely is going to impact companies that aren't just insurers. Next thing, we've got an effective date, which is 1st of January 2021. And obviously, we've got lots of changes from IFRS 4. Has the ISB done anything, helped us with some advice on implementation? Yeah, indeed. Along with the standard, when that was issued, the ISB also published an effects analysis which describes some of the changes from current accounting. And with the standard, they also issued illustrative examples explaining certain aspects of, of the standard as well. Since the issuance of the standard, the ISB has also done several webinars, which have detailed explanations of some parts of the standard. And it's also done a number of podcasts. Okay, perfect. So we've added, we're adding now to another podcast. Also, I've spotted you starring, Gail, in front of the camera in some YouTube videos. Is there any other related material that PwC have brought out? Yeah, here at PwC, you're right. We've done some videos and we're doing those on a monthly basis to provide insights into the standards and also latest developments. We also capture our technical views in Frequently Asked Questions, and these are published on our website in form. We also have our in-depth, which is sort of a summary of the publication, the whole standard, which came out last year. And after each TRG meeting, we issue our in-transition document, which summarises the outcome of the TRG discussions and our observations from the meeting. So the TRG is the Transition Resource Group. We saw we had them for IFRS 15 and IFRS 9 as well. You're a member of that group. What, what are the discussions? How are they going? What, what do they cover? Yeah, you're right. The TRG is the Transition Resource Group and it's made up of accountants and insurers, preparers across the world. They've set this up as a public forum to follow the discussion of questions raised on implementation of IFRS 17 
And it's really to facilitate public discussion and to provide support for stakeholders and also information to the board on in the implementation questions that are arising from the application of new standards. It's worth mentioning that the TRG cannot issue guidance and it can't change the standard, but the staff, the ISB staff, determine what action, if any, will be taken on each issue, whether to take it back to the ISB for further discussion or whether, for example, to issue further educational material. Perfect. So what sort of questions have you had in your first couple of TRGs? Right, so, so far 49 issues have been submitted to the ISB (laughs) and some of those are similar issues. In the two meetings we've had to date, we've discussed in detail 10 topics and maybe there's lots of them and all the information is on the website, but I'll give you some example of the, for example, three of the areas we've been talking about. So the first one is that the accounting model under IFRS 17 is a cash flow model where all cash in and cash out within the boundary of the insurance contracts are discounted to the present value. At inception, if this gives rise to a grain, this contractual service margin, which you and I would call unearned profit, (laughs) is deferred and recognised over the coverage period based on this concept of coverage units. And coverage units aren't really defined in the standard. It just talked about um, quantity of benefits. So the TRG agreed on the principles and how these would apply for a variety of different products. The issue here is some of the contracts also have investment-related features, sort of a saving feature. And within the VFA model, which is one of the models for participating contracts, they're going to have to make a slight amendment to the standard. But the TRG members did not agree that for other savings contracts. So that's an example of something that's likely to go back to the ISB for further discussion. Another thing we talked about was where we draw the line for which cash flows we include in that calculation. Where's that contract boundary? And the topics related to reinsurance, acquisition cash flows and also options have also been something we've discussed in the TRG meetings. And the third topic comes back to your unbundling question. We've had a question on both the separation and combination of insurance contracts and whether you can separate out or combine different insurance components. And again, we've agreed a principle-based approach, but I think everyone's clear that it depends on the significant judgment that will have to be applied in a case-to-case basis. Wow, so lots of technical stuff there. I feel like we have 20 minutes on each of those. Maybe we'll have to have a series Mm. in insurance. But have insurers raised other concerns as well to the TRG? Yeah, that's right. IFRS 17 is a really big operational change for insurers. And I think it's the scale of change that no other industries, even with IFRS 15, have seen. So the TRG has also spent some time discussing some issues where the interpretation of IFRS 17, the new standard, is very clear but the requirements end up with significant operational challenges. And the three that we've discussed so far have been the requirement to present groups of insurance contracts as either assets or liabilities on the balance sheet, the use of premium received in applying the shortcut premium allocation approach, which applies to lots of non-life insurers, and also presentation of insurance revenue when a business combination has taken place. And each of those has significant operational difficulties and system implications in the IFRS 17 projects. That's brilliant. So it's not just technical, it's the operations side as well. So the TRG is an international forum. Are you aware of other implementation forums around the world? Yeah, there there are sort of TRG sorts of forums around the world. If I look in some countries like um, Hong Kong, they have quite a formal process in place that again is in public. Other countries like Canada and Australia 
have things, but they're more informal and they're basically a way in which they gather views to feed into the main TRG. And of course, here in Europe, we have the EFRAG endorsement process and to support their endorsement process, EFRAG's been doing a lot of outreach and also speaking to analysts to, and to having presentations to the board meetings. The messages from these stakeholders, the analysts in particular, have been positive welcoming the standard, but they've also had other speakers in board meetings being some of the largest European insurers where the views have clearly been more mixed on the new standard. EFRAG is now undertaking a process for in-depth testing of the new standard and it's been asking some preparers to do a detailed case study. And they've also had a simplified case study, more of a questionnaire, that they've asked a number of other insurers to take place as well. All those activities will accumulate in the EFRAG doing it, drafting its endorsement advice. And we have to remember the purpose of that is to advise the European Parliament on whether this new standard meets the following criteria. True and fair view, conducive to the European public good, and meets the criteria of understandability, relevance, reliability and comparability. Well, that is a lot going on. So what is, what's the timeline for that endorsement? That's a really good question. First of all, if we look at the implementation of other new significant accounting standards, such as the obvious ones of IFRS 9 and IFRS 15, the time from the ISB issuing the standard to when it was endorsed by the EU was around sort of two and a half years. And they were all endorsed a year in advance of the effective date of the new standard. The latest timeline we've seen from EFRAG is that they're trying to get their final endorsement issued by the end of this year, 2018. Um, and then it goes into the political process. So that will be sometime during 2019. And remember, the standard comes live for periods starting on or after the 1st of January 2021. OK, good. So we'll watch out for those timelines. And then I assume those that are very affected, so the insurance industries, for example, <laughs> um, have already started an implementation project. Yeah, indeed. Many of those have started. Not all, but many. <laughs> And I keep coming back to the point, the impact of the standard is really significant. It's not just accounting systems that are affected, but this changes the entire way of the numbers, so it'll feed into other things such as remuneration, bonuses, and so on. Insurers that issue life insurance contract and have investment-related services, they're likely to have more to do in system changes and requirements than those that have shorter duration contracts. Many insurers are spending a significant time considering which of the three accounting models that the standard has their products are eligible for. For example, IFRS 17 has a simplified model for some contracts that many insurers are performing detailed testing to say if they're contracts that are longer than a year eligible for that. And can't companies just leverage their current accounting systems? Some system updates are likely to be required, but that does depend on both what you have today as your current yeah. systems and the type of business you write. And I think it's also worth saying that I know some insurers are using this new standard as a basis for updating their systems. And frankly, in some of the insurance industry, there may have been underinvestment in the system requirements in the past. And so this will actually enable you to, to put some more investment into those systems. And it's worth saying in Europe, we've had Solvency 2, which again is a discounted cash flow model. And whilst they thought they could leverage that, I think a number of insurers are finding that the, the solvency regulatory return takes far too long and can't meet the much shorter timeline of IFRS reporting, which is another detail once you get into the project for real. Wow, so a lot going on related to this then. Yeah, the standard, remember, will be applicable in 187 countries. I think it's 187. <laughs> and so the industry as a whole is working on it. 
And, and it's interesting, even within PwC, we've held, I think it's more than 150 client workshops. We're more working with more than 100 client projects on the standard today. And we have now a thousand people working on RFS 17 related projects. So it's definitely taking place. We've also launched an e-learning set of suite of modules that we're using both internally within PwC and actually our clients are using as well to help auditors and preparers prepare for the new standard. Wow, thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Gail. 186, 150 client workshops. It sounds like you need a holiday. <laughs> I don't know how you're fitting it all into your days, but thank you so much for taking 20 minutes out of your day to speak to us today. For those people that would like more information on IFRS 17, you can look at www.pwc.com forward slash IFRS 17. And obviously we mentioned some of those YouTube videos as well, the frequently asked questions and those summaries of the TRG discussions. That brings us to the end of our podcast on IFRS 17 insurance. Just a little message from us. It's obviously coming into the summer holidays now and we're going to take a little bit of a break. So we are not going to, don't be too sad, we're not going to have any podcasts in August. So we will be back on the 7th of September with our next edition of PwC IFRS Talks. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.